0: him for dinner only months after my husband had been poisoned and I knew very well that he had poisoned my husband. It was a very strange experience. I have to say that I do not believe that Putin changed a great deal over time. He became more hardened, more isolationist and more manic over time, yes. But he came from a KGB background. He was not very well educated. He was at a position where he had to be brutal and petty. And that is what he stayed. He stayed a man that was brutal and petty.
1: Hello, I'm Emma Nelson, and this is The Big Interview on Monocle 24. My guest today is Katerina Yushchenko. She was born and raised in Chicago to Ukrainian parents who fled their home country after they were conscripted into slave labor to work on German farms during the Second World War. In 1991, she moved to Ukraine, where she met her husband, Viktor Yushchenko, the man who would become famous the world over for being poisoned during his campaign to become the country's president. She and her husband now live south of Kiev, where the Russian invasion has prompted her to say that this is now Ukraine's final stand. It's now or never. Katerina Yushchenko, a very warm welcome to The Big Interview. Thank you so much, Emma, for this opportunity. Katerina, just tell me a little bit about your childhood. Born and raised in Chicago, but you were growing up in a family that had been absolutely devastated by war. I was
0: born to parents who personified the history of Ukraine in the 20th century. My father was born in 1917. So during the Bolshevik revolution, he lived through the 1920s, which was the new economic policy period in the Soviet Union, when his father greatly opposed collectivization of the farms which then led to the Holodomor, which I think most people have heard of. It is the Great Famine of 1932-33, where the Bolshevik government confiscated all the food of our people. In fact, I was named after my father's two younger sisters, Katarina and Klava. My name is Katarina Klava, who died in that famine. As a result of that famine, and his father was executed in 1934 after this because of his opposition. My mother also lived through the famine. My father was from the Kharkiv region, my mother from the Kiev region. She barely survived as well from that famine. You know, they both ended up in Germany during World War II. They were both displaced people working in farms in Germany. They met there. My sister was born in 1945. My father spent many years in after the war. He was very ill from tuberculosis as a result of the war. And he didn't even see my older sister, his little daughter, until she was eight or nine years old, because he was in a tuberculosis sanatorium in Germany. They moved to the United States in 1956 as refugees. They were sponsored by a Ukrainian Orthodox Church in Chicago. And so I grew up with a great sense of responsibility When I was born in Chicago for the homeland, my parents had left. They had not left of their own will. They were not voluntary immigrants. They were refugees. And we were taught that if we did not protect
1: the language, the culture, the church, then who would? How much a part of your childhood were the experiences of your parents, given the fact that, yes, you're trying to preserve An identity, a cultural identity, but where your parents come from is absolute trauma. When I was a a
0: child, I would dream about World War II in my night, in my dreams, in my nightmares. Even though I was born well, well after that, because it was part of our everyday conversation, the famine. My father didn't remember the Bolshevik uprising, but it was a part of his experience, and then the famine, and then the repressions throughout the 1930s of our church, of our intellectuals, and then the war, and so it became a part of my experience, and so it was very important. It was just something that I related to, and it became a part of my experience, even though I had not lived it.
1: And when you were a child, you asked yourself why your parents were just happy to stay in Chicago when there was a big wild world out there. I felt very constrained by
0: the we lived outside of Chicago and I and I felt very constrained. And I wondered why my parents would not want to travel and see the world. And they always said, you know, we are so happy to be here and to be safe. And it took me many years to understand what they meant. And I think I understand it finally now that that sense of peace and harmony is very important. They were extremely happy to be outside of that trauma. They spent many years supporting their family in Ukraine and raising money so that they could help Ukraine and help Ukrainian organizations. And that became a part of my upbringing. They took me to Ukrainian church language dance, Ukrainian youth clubs. It became very important for me to marry somebody Ukrainian in the diaspora because it was a part of their of their way of thinking.
1: A Ukrainian in the United States and feeling outside of society perhaps, and then going back to Ukraine and being an American in Ukraine and being equally different. We were brought up to
0: do all that we could to tell the world about Ukraine's goals for independence and freedom. And there were many years where everyone told us that was an impossible dream and that we were being very silly. And in fact, many people laughed at the not only the Ukrainian diaspora, but the Baltic and other diasporas, that there could be independence for those countries. I remember very much when one time I had the opportunity in the 80s to ask Henry Kissinger, this was already 89 where it seemed possible because of glasnost and i asked him in a forum is there any, what do you think are the chances for ukraine to become independent and he responded by saying i think california will secede from the united states much sooner than ukraine will become independent from the ussr and everyone in the room laughed and Fortunately, I was proved right two years later when Ukraine did become independent. You know, I think it was a combination of many, many things from the great leaders of Thatcher, Reagan, and the Pope coming together at a time when the Soviet Union under Gorbachev was opening up. So I think that it was a tremendous opportunity at the time.
1: Let's move on a little bit. You've settled in Ukraine. You are... Working inside Ukrainian politics, you're setting up think tanks and then you meet your husband and your husband at that time is a banker and he then goes on to be a leading light in Ukrainian politics. What was that like? The time when I came to Ukraine in
0: 1991 was very exciting. We were working on a new constitution. We were presenting to them new the laws that were available in so many different countries. It seemed like everything was possible. It seemed like we could, um, in Ukraine, achieve great prosperity and justice very quickly. But it took a while. And then in 1993, I met a young banker, a very handsome young banker, who was very free market at the time, very acquainted with Western systems, and uh, he was very interested in the changes that could be done in our economy. He brought in a new payment system. My husband was the one who introduced a the Ukrainian Hryvnia. Uh, when he became head of the central bank, the Inflation rate was eleven thousand plus in Ukraine. By the end of his, by within three years, he had brought it down to less than ten percent. So it was an interesting time when there were many opportunities to to create the Ukraine. That we all wanted, whether it was in economics or culture or, or politics or free media, it was a heady time. And even though my husband and I had been brought up in extremely different backgrounds, our values were the same and we had the same goals.
1: What was it like having to become a political wife in many ways? I mean, You had your career by yourself, but suddenly your husband is in the spotlight.
0: Well, I gave up my working. I was working at the company KPMG at the time, and I gave that up because it became very controversial. And then soon they began the opposition to my husband, and much of it financed. We now learn, we knew at the time, but we've now learned for sure that it was financed by the, the Kremlin. Many articles that I was a CIA agent that had been sent in to somehow influence him so it was a difficult time but you know we tried to ignore all the obstacles because you know we both felt very strongly about th- that Ukraine needed to move forward and so his political career became very important to us because it was an opportunity to realize everything not only that w- w- we dreamed of but that had been the dream of our parents our
1: grandparents and many generations before us In 2004, he's one of the two main candidates in the Ukrainian presidential election. He wins, but only because of a repeat of the runoff between him and the Prime Minister, Viktor Yanukovych. Before the second runoff, your husband becomes world famous because he is poisoned. Tell me what happened. Well, you know, my husband,
0: Viktor, campaigned on a
1: platform
0: of freedom, identity, identity, Western values. You know, when he had served as the prime minister in 2000, 2001, and he had been very successful in promoting free market reforms in our country. And he had made it very clear that Ukraine was going to move away from Russia. In fact, he had told the new prime minister, Vladimir Putin, that Ukraine would like them to prepare to move out of Crimea at the set date in the treaty of 2000, I think it was 17. And, you know, as a result, he was threatened, we were threatened throughout 2003 and 2004. And as you mentioned, he was poisoned. But that only made the Ukrainian people feel more and more that they wanted to move away from their past a past that had been associated too much with russia and they wanted to move toward a european future because europe had been a part of our past it was a very difficult time for us but it was a time where ukraine for the first time really stood up i have to say i personally didn't expect it But when we saw what had happened with his poisoning, when we saw what had happened with the with the falsifications in the elections, the Ukrainian people came together as never before in our history and millions came out into the streets to protest.
1: Tell us a little bit more about what it's like now living in the shadow of what happened then. I mean, you've said in the past that you're still on Vladimir Putin's hit list. I think that every
0: Ukrainian is on Vladimir Putin's hit list. He has said that anyone, you know, there is a there was an article recently in RIA News in, in Russia, the state uh, Russian news agency, that anyone who feels themselves Ukrainian, that does not consider themselves Russian, that has an affinity toward Europe, must be a Nazi. The very comedic spokeswoman for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Russia has posted several times that I am a Nazi, that I was a daughter of Nazis brought up to come back to Ukraine to bring in Nazism. I mean, the the, the absurdity
1: of that all. Let's move to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. How surprised were you that it happened, given the fact that everything that you have said suggests that Ukraine has been linked through trauma and conflict for years, centuries, under the shadow and the threat of Russia's clause. I have to say that we had
0: never expected Russia to give up on trying to take over Ukraine. We knew that would happen. But we expected that Russia would do this in a much more intelligent, devious, manipulative manner than they did, you know, the way they did it was absolutely absurd. And it's not something I have to say that my husband and I expected even after all the warnings from the West. We didn't think that Putin would make a mistake that was so great and that would so damage Russia. He came into Ukraine expecting to take it over in three days. He sent in troops with a store of medals and uh, parade uniforms, thinking that he would march down our main street, Khreshchatyk and in a parade within three days, hand out medals for the taking over of Kiev, and then Odessa, and then Lviv. And that was absolutely an impossible task. Um, Instead, when he realized that he could not do what he wanted, he decided to pursue a strategy of destroying cities, of committing tremendous atrocities, and indeed, just doing all he could to eliminate the Ukrainians as a nation, as a people, to either kill them all or drive them out and take them over because of a manic obsession with with taking over Ukraine, a manic obsession that is partly driven, mostly driven by by his desire to stay in power, to be a great leader and to become, you know, to, to, to gather the old Russian lands and To teach his people that, no, Ukraine, the Baltic countries, Georgia cannot be successful. We, you know, he did not want us to set an example of democracy and freedom.
1: Tell me a little bit more about the Vladimir Putin now compared to the Putin that your husband and I believe you met and knew.
0: You know, we had met him several. My husband spent many hours speaking with him. I had only met him twice in my life. One time at, at, at an event at um, a commemoration at Auschwitz and one time in our home for dinner.
1: What's it like having Vladimir Putin round your house for dinner? I think you're the first person I've ever met who that's happened to.
0: Well, we had him for dinner only months after my husband had been poisoned and I knew very well that he had poisoned my husband. It was a surreal experience, but it was something that we had to rise above our personal feelings because Ukraine needed Russia at the time. We were transporting gas. We needed to have a good relationship with Russia, and even though The Kremlin has always accused my husband of being very anti-Russian. My husband tried from day one to establish some type of a relationship with Russia because it was so important to Ukraine at the time, economically, to somehow pursue that. It was a very strange experience. I have to say that I do not believe that Putin changed a great deal over time. He became more hardened, more isolationist, and more manic over time, yes. But he came from a KGB background. He was only a colonel in the KGB, which meant that he was not very high up in the KGB. He was not very well educated. He was at a position where he had to be brutal and petty. That is what he stayed. He stayed a man that was brutal and petty.
1: Katerina, not to be too petty myself, but I, I do have to ask you this. Can you remember what you ate with Vladimir Putin? And can you remember what you talked about? I honestly don't remember what we served, but to my to my
0: recollection, he ate nothing that we served. And they brought their own food. And I remember feeling a little bit strange at the time and asking my guards why why that wasn't. And, and one of them... Uh, sort of wisely said, you know, if you have killed other people, you're very careful about what you eat. And so I don't remember what they ate. I remember taking him on our tour of our house. We had taken him to a little museum that we had created of Ukrainian history, and he seemed very puzzled by it. Because it was such, I'm sure it was such a a drastic difference between the luxurious environment he had lived in, the small house we had created of Ukrainian culture and history and Ukrainian artifacts. and, And we were extremely proud of it. And he seemed a little bit stunned by what we were showing him. But we had done that intentionally to show him that we were proud of our history as compared to what he was calling, you know, being part of Russia.
1: Let's move on to the the current situation and, and the war. You say this is Ukraine's final stand. What do you mean by that? For us, this war, this
0: time is an existential war. We understand we have lost too much We have fought too long to give up right now. For us, it is now or never. And Ukrainians understand that. Ukrainians will fight. We feel that Russia is failing. It's being defeated. It's running out of ammunition. It's running out of manpower. It's low morale. But they still try to create ultimatums, demand our surrender. But if we give in, we understand that this will just be a time for Russia to regroup, that they will evade again because they have one goal, and that is to take over not only Ukraine, but to take over the former Soviet Union. So for us, there is no choice but to fight to the end.
1: One person who also felt that it hasn't been a choice is your stepdaughter. She's signed up and she's taken part in action, hasn't she? Yes, yes. You know, as have hundreds of thousands of people.
0: I think you know that when the war started, we had many women and children who went across the border, but we also had tens and hundreds of thousands of men who returned from work in Poland and Europe to come back to Ukraine to fight tens of thousands in fact 110,000 people have signed up for the territorial defense forces but there is a waiting list so everyone is fighting our daughter and so many other people are fighting whether it be doctors or, or soldiers or or IT specialists or farmers who are fighting you know we're fighting because we know that we're fighting for existence he has said that we are not a nation we understand that if russia wins it will not be any peace. It will be an ethnic cleansing. It will be a genocide of our nation, and that we have no choice. Ukraine is a very peace loving nation. We've never evaded, invaded another country in our history, but we're a freedom loving nation, and we refuse to live in subjugation any longer. How
1: do you think Ukraine will change at the end of this war? I mean, your husband came to power as a result of the Orange Revolution. People had hope for him to finally take Ukraine towards Europe. It didn't happen. Will this conflict be the thing that ultimately pushes Ukraine towards Europe's arms?
0: You know, we have been fighting to return to our European past. We were a very important part of Europe for many centuries. And then we were taken into to Russia and removed from that, um, from that uh, feeling and that destiny but we wanted to move forward. It has been a difficult path. We hoped it would happen after the Orange Revolution, but Russia intervened, the old communist past intervened. We went out on the streets again in 2014, again demanding our European future. And that's when Russia invaded our country. It took Crimea, it took Eastern Ukraine. We lost 14,000 people. We had millions of um, internally displaced people. Now we're fighting again. And we do feel this is the final battle. It's, it, we do feel it's, it's now or never. And we feel strongly. We are absolutely convinced that we will prevail. All, the timing of it will depend on how much assistance we receive from the West in terms of weapons, in terms of sanctions, in terms of economic support, but we will prevail, because there is no way that that system, which is based on lies, uh, which is based on cruelty, will survive. It will end. But we just hope it'll be sooner rather than later. And we're—I want to say—we're extremely grateful to your prime minister for being the first to stand up and say, "Let's help Ukraine," and then everyone else followed. And we will never forget that.
1: What kind of Ukraine will we be looking at when all this is over? The the, <sighs> the 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 infrastructure, notwithstanding the devastation, notwithstanding. But you have, you will have a country which has a collective trauma to negotiate through. You will have a country which went into this war with its own problems. Your husband tried to fight corruption and struggled. The The current president, Volodymyr Zelensky, was dealing corru- with corruption before this started. And also, you have a large slice of your country, which is currently in the teeth of a battle with Russia. Is that something that may have to go?
0: Well, you know, we we will not give up any portion of our country. You know, I have to say that Vladimir Putin has accomplished the exact opposite of what he hoped to accomplish. And instead of taking Ukraine, he has made Ukraine much more united. He has made Europe much more united. And I believe that the Ukraine that will rise from these ashes will be a much, much stronger country. Our children indeed will be traumatized, but many of them will be stronger. Many of them have now had the opportunity to spend months in schools throughout Europe. They will come back and make our school system better. I believe when we rebuild our cities, they will be better cities and our factories, they will be better, they will be green factories, they will be more modern cities. There are many reforms that my husband tried to make, that his successors, Mr. Poroshenko, Mr. Zelensky, tried to make, that they could not do because of an of, uh, intransigent, you could say, uh, the intransigent legacy from the past. Now we will overcome that and be able to create, you know, school systems a medical system, a social system, business environment, a legal system that will be, I would say, future oriented. It will be a different system. I think that this war, despite its tremendous, tremendous losses, will help us leapfrog many of our problems and become a
1: truly important future oriented country in Europe. Katerina Yuschenko, thank you so much for joining us on The Big Interview. Thank you so much. And that's it for this edition of The Big Interview. It was produced by Emma Searle and edited by Steph Chungu and researched by Lillian Fawcett. From me, Emma Nelson, goodbye and thank you very much for listening.